Well, it was COVID and everybody in every church and every community was trying to figure out how to navigate that. Where we were in the journey as a congregation is that we were only open to some people in worship, handfuls of people. So on any given Sunday, you'd see about 10 people here. On one of those Sundays, after worship, we went out, as was our custom, to the front steps of the church to greet each other. There's a young man who is a member of our church for several years. He used to love to come to our evening service called Evensong. But after a few years of knowing him, I just noticed that he would get to any service he could. Didn't matter the style. Didn't matter who was preaching. And it also, it also seemed to me that he wasn't going simply to worship with God's beloved community. It seemed to me that he was almost using the pattern of worship as a part of his recovery program. You see, it didn't take long to realize that he had some addiction issues. He had battled on and off again uh, heroin addiction. Now, don't let that shape or change the way you might think of this young man. This guy, if I could make people like him, I would. What a kind soul. What a gentle soul. What, what, what an evangelist for God's kingdom. Somebody who I call a friend. And it was on this day we stood out there on the steps and he had his hands in his pockets. It was rather sheepish as he wore his denim jeans, his boots and his leather jacket and a black t-shirt that he always wore. And he said, he said, Pastor, I want to talk to you. Began to get teary and tell me then that he was feeling lost. And he felt isolated and alone and he was struggling. He couldn't feel God. That was Sunday. Tuesday, I invited him to Grindhouse for some burgers, and we sat and we talked, and he told me how much he loved the Alcoholics Anonymous program, otherwise known as AA. Now, he didn't even have a problem out with alcohol. He was a drug addict, but he found AA to be fundamentally more spiritual than NA. And then that made me think about something I heard Father Richard Rohr, the famous Franciscan, say. He's a great spirituality writer, still working right now. Richard Rohr says that the 12-step program is the greatest enduring legacy that America has given the world of spirituality. And when I said that, this friend of mine goes like this, yes, it excited him, something awful. And he said, I ought to read the, Bill, the big book written by Bill W., the Alcoholics Anonymous book. He said, it doesn't matter if you're an alcoholic or if you're not an alcoholic, there's something in there for everybody. That was Tuesday. On Thursday night, he came to my house. We had small group. I exchanged some contemplative prayer books with him. He, he was trying to get me to read the big book. I ordered it. And on Sunday, he died. We don't know if it was an overdose or if fentanyl was in the drug. What I can tell you is here's a good man who got beat by a monster. He was a good man, church, but he got beat by a monster. So I started reading a big book whenever it came in the mail, and I would hide it. You know, I'd always put the spine backwards on my shelf so people wouldn't assume things about me. 
But as most of you know, I've just come off of medical leave of absence. I have had liver failure. So I started reading it, wondering about my own self. What's interesting is when you read these things, you start studying addictions, maybe even ask yourself if you have any, you find yourself doing these assessments. And one thing I really liked about the book is that it talks about how you can damage other people, not just through drinking too much, but through anything. Richard Rohr wrote a great book on the spirituality of the 12 steps, and he says, what sorts of thought patterns have you kept that have hurt other people? Have you ever used your words in a way that hurt other people? One of the assessment questions is, has my drinking caused harm to someone else? Well, the real author of this book and the spirit of wants to ask, is there anything in your life that's caused you to cause harm? Because if you have, it might be an idol. Oh, I think it's a great book and I recommend it to everyone. And now I proudly put the spine outward, I can tell you. And one of the things I was reminded by reading that book and Rohr's book is this. A person of true religious devotion, a person of true faith, a person who wants a breakthrough in their life to break cycles of bondage and monsters that hold them, needs not just religion in the sense that they go to church, sit in the same pew, wear the right clothes, even pay a tithe, go to all the right programs, check all the right boxes. They have to have a vital spiritual experience, a moment of change. To my right is my friend Janet. She's a member of our congregation. She's also a chaplain who works in the palliative care program at Emory. Now, why do I bring her up here today and why am I going to interview her? Well, because we often come to places in our life where we're open more to these transformative moments of God. One of the most profound is when we're at end of life or we're suffering pain and tragedy. So I wanted to hear from her and I wanted the congregation to hear from her about the religious, the life of religious pursuit and health and decline and why it matters and makes a difference. So Janet, thank you for being here. Yep. High five. <laughs> we did this once and it was, it was great. So if this doesn't go great, just know that it happened great earlier. I, I have enjoyed Janet and Frank since they joined Peachtree Christian Church, and I've always been enamored by the work that you do, knowing a little bit about chaplaincy. So for the, those of us here who have heard of chaplaincy um, and also heard the words hospice and palliative care, can you share with us what are the unique distinctions between the kinds of care offered? Because you're in the palliative care program. Right, right, right. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah, it just to kind of level set. Um, and explain a little bit. There's there's different kinds of health care, right? There's there's preventative care where you go get your checkup, you get your scans. There's curative care. You get sick, you get medicine. Something happens to you, you go to the hospital. And there's palliative care. And palliative comes from the word palliate, which means to comfort or soothe. So it's comfort care. So it's a lot of symptom management, pain management, and it's not just on the physical level. It's a, it's a broader spectrum. We believe in whole health. It's body, mind, and soul. 
So if we say that it's uh, support body, mind, and soul, then it means that we have resources in, in all those areas. And I'm the spiritual piece of that pie. Um, to, to also talk about the difference between um, palliative care and hospice care, which a lot of times people think those are synonymous. And so if you don't hear anything else I say today, maybe you'll understand that a little bit better. Um, the best way to understand that is that all of hospice care is palliative care. It's all comfort care. But not all of palliative care is hospice care. You can still be, um, for instance, getting chemo treatments uh, with cancer and still get palliative care to come alongside and help with some of your symptom management or pain management. But bottom line is palliative care, which is done in the supportive care outpatient clinic at Emory, which is where I am. Um, uh, what's I going to say? <laughs> well, let me ask this question. What's your goal as a chaplain it, when it, you walk into a room? Okay. What do you hope to do with a patient? Right. Uh, I was going to say all of our patients are seriously, seriously ill okay. or towards the end of life. So what, what we do as part of the team, when I come into a room, I welcome the patients. And interestingly enough, as part of the team, I'm the first person they see, not the physician. They send in the spiritual health clinician first because I'm doing a welcome, maybe I'm doing a little educating on what we're about, why they might be there. And then I go into a little bit of the spirit, a spiritual assessment, but it's not a checklist. It's really through a series of questions that I'm finding out what's important to them. Um, what are some of the things they might be struggling with? Um, and then it might immediately bring up emotions in them, might see immediate tears. It might mean that uh, people have some um, existential questions that they've really been struggling with because in a time like that, as you can imagine, um, people are asking things like, what is the purpose of this? Why is this happening to me? Where is God? So it's a safe place um, for people to talk about those things that maybe even they wouldn't want to talk to their minister about. But I'm pretty anonymous. Um, I'm, I'm not very threatening to people, and, uh, and I'm not medical, so it's a really good place for them to talk about some of these questions. They might just immediately ask me for a prayer, or they might say, no, thank you, and all of those things are appropriate. So it's just through a conversation to figure out where we need to go. Is it ever your goal to, to share the gospel, to evangelize with somebody who would not claim Christ or Christianity as their faith tradition? Yeah, we, we as, as a as a trained spiritual health clinician, we're trained to support people of all faiths and no faith. So all people we support. Um, some of my most fun encounters are when I meet someone who immediately is like kind of no, um, but I'm a little bit like a Labrador retriever and I usually kind of stick around, you know, like <laughs> you will like me by the end of this encounter. Um, but just through conversations, you know, they just feel more supported. They feel more heard which is another thing that we really love about palliative care is our, our new patient appointments are one hour long. Mm. Now imagine most of the appointments you've been to over the past several months, you're kind of like a revolving door in and out, you know, right? But it's a time to really be heard. And so I love that I get, a, get to be a piece of that where they're heard. Well, can you give us a story um, of maybe an experience you had with a patient that's just left you almost shaken or changed to your core, that, that just the encounter with them, their narrative, or what you felt from the spirit in the moment has just done something to yeah. you. <clears throat> well, because of Joshua, 
I would love to tell a story about a young man named Joshua that came to my mind. That guy right there? Not, it wasn't him, I promise. I remember him when he was knee high to a grasshopper, <laughs> okay. and now I can't walk next to him because I can't get sunlight. <laughs> Anywho, go ahead. Um, one of the most precious patients I've had in palliative care over the past six years was a young man named Joshua. And, you know, we're talking about the spirit, right, being in us and Christ in us. Um, Joshua is a young man, as a teenager, probably close to your age, um, had a lot of spiritual experiences. He had friends that took him to church. He went to church. Um, he had a very hard background. His, his mother had a lot of mental health issues. His father was caught up in being a successful attorney, and so he kind of felt just lost. Um, so these people, early on, it kind of bought him in, but then he went to college, um, and he started kind of going the way of the flesh more than the spirit. Um, he got into a lot of drinking, a lot of partying, um, and he got addicted to um, gambling. Mm. And so now he, in his early 30s, was diagnosed with, with lymphoma, which is a, a form of cancer. And he wound up in our palliative clinic. And it had been a long time since he had walked in the spirit, since he'd even thought about God. But when we met, one of the joys of what I do is that it's not, I don't cons ever consider it to be me. I consider it to be my role as a reminder to people of God, of the presence of God, of God maybe when God was in their lives. So when I started meeting with Joshua, he's very honest with me up front of where he'd been lately and felt really lost, felt really shameful, felt, you know, he had questions like, did I, you know, is this a punishment? How did this, you know, because of what I've been doing? And I just felt like God was saying, just tell Joshua, I want him to know that I love him. And so that's, every time I saw him, that's what we talked about. Joshua, God loves you. God loves you. Over time, he started telling me more and more that because of our encounters, Christ had come back into his life and that he was seeing the value of it again, that he was revisiting that side of who he was. Towards the end of his life, he would text me often and ask me to pray for him. He would tell me that he was praying. He even eventually said, you know, I, I remembered that my mother named me Joshua because she wanted me to be strong and courageous. And so the last text I got from him, he said, I'm praying now every morning and every night, and being with God again is like the perfectly warmed blanket. Hmm. And I thought that was the most beautiful way for him to describe now revisiting and being back in the spirit with God. And it's one of my favorite, it's not a story, it was an experience yeah. that I just, felt so honored that God would allow me to be a part of it. Yeah, that, 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 that it, to be honored, you are honored to be part of that. Absolutely. There's a, uh, something irreplaceable, irreplaceable in that person's life. Now, why do you think it is, and, and maybe just speculation, but why is it that we have these existential questions in tragedy or at the end of life? Here's Joshua, you're story you're talking about with the young man who's saying, you know, why me? Is God punishing me? And uh, these moments of maybe 
internal uh, seeking shine more than maybe uh, any other day or any other time in your life? Why do you think that is? Why do we wait? Maybe, maybe we don't think we need to. You know, we're not in a crisis mode. And so we're just rocking along, right? Um, so all of a sudden we're in timeout and we're trying to just get a grasp on what is happening. Um, but in our day-to-day, I just don't think we take, a, take the time. You know, I, I heard a long time ago that just one weekend alone with God, really with God, um, accounts for more than a whole year of church and Sunday school. You know, <laughs> so when we're, we're, we're just stopped and alone and thinking and the Spirit is working within us, you know, that's, that's when we, we're, we're, we're really thinking about it. And I also think, you know, the lower we are, the higher we reach, right? Sometimes I say these crisis moments are when our prayers turn from dear God to, oh, God. You know, it's, it's a different way to experience God. Yeah, I, I don't want to go through uh, what I've been going through again. Yet, I will say that the spiritual journey I was on, um, I miss now that. I have a more regular schedule. Mm-hmm. You have a regular schedule, you're going to get busy just doing the next thing you got to do. Yeah. Whereas this was me being very, very alone, except for with God. Right. And there was something sweet about that and weakness. Yeah. Feeling bolstered by God. Yeah. Yeah. You know, sometimes when I walk through the hospital, I just think, this is life. We think outside the hospital is life, but. To me, this is life. This is where real life happens. Like, Ooh. this is practice. <laughs> you know, in that hospital, we're in the game. That's life. Time out. Yeah. This is practice yeah. for the real life, which is in the hospital. Yeah. Let's unpack that a little more. Okay. Um, what's the practice? What's the real life about? I mean, like, say more things. To me, what we're doing here is, is we're just feeding our spirits, right? We're learning. We're, we're, getting, we're getting the messages. We're getting the scripture. We're hearing the music. All the things that become our spiritual tools down the road, okay? We're gathering those. When we hit crisis mode, we've got those tools right here to draw from. But we don't draw from them always in our normal everyday life. Um, but that's why it's so important to be doing this so that we have them to draw from. Often that's what I'll talk to patients about when they come in. It's like, you know, let's talk about what are your spiritual tools. And maybe some of them we need to bring out and dust off or shore up or revisit. You know, what are some things that have been meaningful to you? What are some of you... I call them my little, call them your little stacks of stones, like the Israelites in the desert. Where, where have you met God? Where have you heard God speak? What did he say to you in those times? Those are spiritual tools that now you take and you apply them, right? For Joshua, today is, a, is one of his little stacks of stones that he will always remember was a special time, right, in his life. He can draw strength from that for the rest of his life, remembering how I felt on that day. Um, so as we were talking earlier this week, uh, one thing that Janet said that, that goes along with this that really kind of spoke to me was that when we get to the end of life, um, 
we really are going to draw on those tools. We call them the practices of our faith, our spiritual practice, our religion, these things that we do here to, and things we do alone. Those are the resources we have to pull on, pull into our life during crisis. But if we don't ever practice them, and then we have those moments of crisis. Right. We don't really have anything. No. We're just um, we're like a ball player. It's out of shape. Right. Right. Is that is that yeah, fair? Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm not. Um. Yeah. I think we just when I think of walking in the spirit, it, it's it's just everything because it's how we view life. It's how we view death. How we feel, view sickness. It's how we um, welcome others in. It's it's how we draw strength. It's it's everything. Um, you know, I chart after every patient, and um, many times I'll say, you know, values, faith, for comfort, and support. You know, <laughs> so I'm typing in my charting, and 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 then other times I'll say, um, their faith frames their view of life and death. You know, and to me that says it all. Um, they're drawing from the things they've known. And now they're applying them. At nine o'clock, you told us that there's a difference between people who say, when you ask them about their faith, they say, well, I'm a member of this church. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Versus people who start talking about start the talking shape about of the Jesus. Faith. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, membership, that's great. Membership is great. It is good. It's always good. But being, you know, and, and uh, I mean, I'm, I'm a little, I will mention this with a little tiptoeing around it, but I also feel that way at church when we're at church, when all we're talking about is church and not like what Christ means to us. You know, I, I was thinking with my husband, Frank, you know, why, why, why do we come to church? You know, he and I recently, it was a year ago, a year and a few months that we came here and we were really, you know, we'd been in COVID and for a while and we'd kind of been on our own, but we just had this desire to connect again. And, and I was asking, why, what do you think that is? And I don't think it was so much for what I got here. I think it was for me to, to celebrate what God does in my everyday life, right? Like, I love God. I want to come and worship Him. I love God. I want to come and share stories with others. I love God. I want to come and be encouraged with hearing the Word. Um, so yeah, I think, but I don't think everyone, you know, when you, you asked about that, uh, when people talk about being in church, sometimes they'll just tell me what their membership is rather than telling me what it means to them. Mm. Those are two different things to tell me. Two different things. Right. So since you like to go to church and, and share stories, I do want you to share the story with this group of folks about the man that you told me about after one of the my sermons about the tears. You could. Yeah. Um, you know, this is a story that many times when I leave a room, I'll feel like I've been to church, right? Uh, I'll come out of a room and feel weak need. And this was one of those stories. But I was called up to the ICU at Emory University Hospital uh, several years ago. And I came up and they said that we need to do an advanced directive for this gentleman. And at Emory, the chaplains help people do their advanced directive if they don't have one. <coughs> so he was very critically ill. Um, the, the nurse that I was talking to said that he had been homeless most of his adult life. They were having trouble finding a family member, even anybody that knew him that would speak for him. And, you know, we could put on the advanced directive as um, his health care agent. 
And so uh, she said he had been an alcoholic, that that's, um, he was really struggling with that. Um, so just had a lot of things that he was struggling with. So I went into the room. He was a little, little tiny guy, and he was laying in the bed, and he had the sheet pulled all the way up and um, could hardly see him. So I just grabbed the little stool and just rolled it right over right next to him and got this close to him. And just started, you know, introducing myself and talking to him. And as I was, he just had little tears just started falling down his cheeks. I mean, he'd hardly said two words to me, but just these little tears coming down. And so I asked him, I said, tell me, tell me about your tears. What are your tears about? And he said, I think they're just the tears I forgot to cry. And when he said that, I just was astounded. <laughs> um, and it really made me think, what are tears that I have forgotten to cry? Um, but just knowing his situation and the pain he had been through mm -hmm. and that now he was able to weep over them was just really a touching moment. I told Janet that, you know, she told me that story after a sermon I preached it connected in her mind and it happened right before I got ill and in, during my time of convalescence, I thought to myself about that man who was crying the tears he forgot to cry. And I thought, if this time of being pushed right up against life's edge, if this time of difficulty is going to mean anything in my life more than just a fear, a moment where I'm afraid that I'm not going to make it, then I can't forget the tears. I got to live true to myself and God in that moment. And if it's going to come with tears, it's going to come with tears. But I got to live authentically before God in that moment. Janet, thank you so very much. Absolutely. I wanted Absolutely. to take some of this and wrap it up and remind us something about the text that we are reading. St. Paul uh, talks about two different life paths here. The way of the flesh, the way of the spirit. Now, have you heard it said that there are two types of people in this world? The kind of people who believe in only two types of people and then everyone else? I've heard it that way before, too. Here's the thing about it. Dualisms, dichotomies, they make thinking easy, but they are never sophisticated enough to describe almost anything we face in the world. The world is much more complicated. And so it's not just that there's the way of the spirit and the way of the flesh, simple, easy peasy, but Paul's got rhetoric on his side. He's trying to get people to listen. Choose the way of flesh. He's not talking about your skin. He's not talking about your athletic body. He's talking about the things that don't last. He's talking about the things that if you love them too much, they become idols. He's talking about things that can become your master and the monsters that beat you up at night. And then there's the way of the spirit. Receiving your life from God. Having your ego decentered so that God can take the place of center. Having a transformation of the heart, a vital experience with God. So, why religion? We've been asking. Because you're already religious. Why religion? Because what else is there? You're trying to find something to give your life value. You are right. If it's CrossFit or if it's God, it's something. 
What matters this morning is what kind of religion are you choosing? The one that even looks good on paper, can talk about your membership somewhere? Or the one that speaks to a vital, essential experience? That after you have had that experience, you're different. Oh, no, not perfect, because you're on the pilgrim path, but you keep being transformed. Well, I don't know if you're encouraged, but I am, and I'm encouraged to live in such a way that I don't leave the, the tears left behind, that I live openly before God, that God will continue to speak new into my life. How about you? Can we all give a debt of gratitude to Janet for sharing with us and her work? Thank you.